0: Welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, where we will discuss high yield concepts for students on their anesthesia rotation. I am your host, Scott, the fourth year medical student. Thanks for tuning in to episode 8 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, and today we'll talk about autonomic drugs and antihypertensives. And to give you an overview of how this episode is going to go, we're first going to talk about the onomic drugs, and we're going to give you a quick physiology review and talk about the different um, vasoactive medications, and then after that, we'll talk about the antihypertensives that are important to know. With that, let's go ahead and get started. So we're going to start with a quick physiology review of the different adrenergic receptors. And uh, if you're like me, I kind of dumped all this information after I took step one. So hopefully you guys didn't do that. But if you did, we'll try to make this as uh, less painful as possible. So the adrenergic receptors we're going to talk about today are alpha and beta. So these receptors are G-protein-coupled receptors and they use GTP as a cofactor. The alpha receptors that we're going to take a look at are alpha 1 and 2. And beta receptors, we're also going to take a look at 1 and 2. So for alpha 1 receptors, they are GQ-protein-coupled receptors. And the mechanism through this is that it activates the phospholipase, which in turn eventually increases the amount of IP3 and DAG, D-A-G. And all of that in turn causes an increase in calcium. And we'll talk about how this is pertinent to the different drugs later on in this episode. For alpha-2, it's a GI protein-coupled receptor. And the GI uh, inhibits adenylate cyclase, which in turn decreases the amount of calcium available. And this causes a decrease in exocytosis of norepinephrine vesicles. And for the beta receptors, um, there are generally GS which causes activation of adenylate cyclase, which in turn changes ATP to CAMP, which then increases the kinase cascade. So keep those things in mind as we discuss the different uh, effects on the receptors because knowing this will help you understand why we give the drugs that we give. So now that we know the basic mechanisms of each receptor, we're just going to talk about the most important effects for each receptor. Okay, so for alpha-1 receptors, it causes contraction of the smooth muscle, and in turn, that increases the systemic vascular resistance. And just to review, alpha-1 receptors are GQ, which activates the phospholipase, increases IP3 and DAG, and in turn causes increase in calcium in the cell. So increase the calcium, you're able to contract the smooth muscle more, and that uh, is the main effect of alpha one. For alpha two, it causes sedation and decreases sympathetic flow. Because remember, the net effect of alpha two is to decrease the excess exocytosis of norepinephrine vesicles and lastly alpha 2 it causes the vasodilation and ultimately decreases the blood pressure the primary uses for alpha 2 agonists is as an anti-hypertensive and for its negative chronotropic effects or beta-1 receptors, they are mostly found on the postsynaptic membranes of the heart. And these are used to cause a positive inotropic, chronotropic, and dromotropic effects on the heart. And lastly, beta-2 receptors are mostly found on the postsynaptic receptors in smooth muscles and glands. though some of them are in the ventricular myocytes. And the net effect of activating beta-2 receptors is it relaxes the smooth muscle, which ultimately increases bronchodilation, vasodilation, and relaxation of the uterus, bladder, and gut. So if you're thinking things like albuterol, it's a beta-2 agonist, so it causes the bronchodilation. All right, so that was the physiology review. Hopefully I didn't lose any of you guys out there, Um, but if you did, I recommend you to listen to it again or take a look at the show notes or, you know, take a look at another resource in case I absolutely bombed this for you. But um, just review the autonomic physiology because it's going to be very important to understanding the medications that are used during an anesthesia case. So next we're going to talk about important vasoactive medications, and this is going to include catecholamines and sympathomimetics. First we'll talk about catecholamines, and the ones we'll discuss are epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So for epinephrine, the primary uses for that, as you probably already know, are anaphylaxis, uh, emergency situations. So for example, a patient has a uh, cardiac arrest and it's also used in local anesthetics due to its uh, vasoconstrictive properties. And this decreases bleeding and also decreases systemic absorption. So how does epinephrine achieve these effects? Glad you asked. Um, of so the notable effects of epinephrine are its effects on the alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 Uh, receptors. So the net effects of alpha-1 stimulation other than general vasoconstriction is that it would decrease the splenic and renal blood flow but increase the coronary perfusion. And regarding beta-1 receptors, the epinephrine would increase cardiac output, increase the blood pressure, but at the cost of increasing oxygen demand due to increased contractility. And lastly, its beta-2 effects include bronchodilation. And it's important for epinephrine to start with low doses and to titrate up. And generally speaking, it's likely that you're going to have to dilute the solution before actually giving it since it's such a potent uh, medication. Next is norepinephrine. And the mechanism for this is it's a direct alpha-1 agonist, and also has beta-1 and some beta-2 activity. The notable effects for norepinephrine is an increase in myocardial contractility due to the beta-1, an increase in systemic vascular resistance and blood pressure, and that's both systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and those are due to the alpha-1 effects it's good to know that due to the increase of blood pressure, it could cause a reflex bradycardia to compensate for that. And also due to the vasoconstriction, uh, it is possible that there could be decrease in renal and splenic blood flow, but it is still a good choice to use in managing shock, uh, particularly septic shock. So the last catecholamine we're going to discuss is dopamine. And dopamine has both direct and indirect adrenergic effects, but primarily it has a dopaminergic effect. So the interesting thing about dopamine is that it has different effects based on the dosage you give. So uh, if you give a low, medium, or high dose, that's gonna give you a different effect. And this is gonna be particularly important for those who you taking step one or level one. So pay attention to this part. So low doses of dopamine, and that's defined as 0.5 to 3 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And this low dose would activate the DA1 receptors, and this would cause renal vasodilation, An increase in diuresis and natural uresis. So for a medium dose, that's three to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute, Uh, that would cause an increase in contractility of the heart, increased heart rate, increased systemic blood pressure, and ultimately increase in cardiac output. And lastly, if you give a high dose, and that's defined as 10 to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute, That would have very prominent alpha 1 effects so you have an increase in peripheral vascular resistance and decreased renal blood flow and it's important to note that even though we kind of outline these things like the dosage effects at different uh, mechanisms but it's important to know that it's not always predictable and in most cases dopamine has been replaced with norepinephrine in most situations and that's including critically ill patients however it is still tested on boards and this is one of those parlor tricks that you should know so definitely review this and master it if you're taking like step one level one that kind of thing (laughs) now that we're done talking about the catecholamines we're going to switch gears and talk about the sympathomimetics and this will include ephedrine phenylephrine and dobutamine so ephedrine the mechanism for that is it's a non-catecholamine sympathomimetic and the notable effects for that is going to increase the blood pressure heart rate contractility and the cardiac output. The ephedrine also has action as a bronchodilator. Key notes about ephedrine is it has a longer duration of action and less potent than uh, epinephrine. And ephedrine is also commonly used as a vasopressor in anesthesia. Next is phenonephrine. The mechanism for this is it's an alpha-1 agonist. And notable effects for phenylenephrine is it causes peripheral vasoconstriction, it increases the systemic vascular resistance, and therefore increases blood pressure. Key notes for phenylenephrine is that it could cause reflex bradycardia, and that's going to be mediated by the vagus nerve. And lastly, we're going to talk about uh, dobutamine, and the mechanism for that is it's a beta-1 and 2 agonist, and notable effects for that is an increase in cardiac output and myocardial contractility. It's also going to cause a vasodilation via the beta-2 activity, which prevents a large increase in arterial blood pressure. Dibutamine also causes a decrease in left ventricular filling pressure, but it's important to note that the coronary blood flow is going to actually increase. And key notes about dopamine is that it increases myocardial oxygen consumption, so it's not used routinely. Now we're going to talk about the antihypertensives. And particularly, we're going to look at alpha 2 agonists and beta blockers so the two alpha 2 agonists we're going to talk about are clonidine and dexmetomidine i totally butchered that but for the purpose of this podcast i'm going to refer dexmetomidine as dex because i have trouble pronouncing it So for clonidine, there are a few uh, key effects to note about clonidine is that it decreases the anesthetic and analgesic requirements by decreasing the minimum alveolar concentration. So if a patient has a history of post-op nausea and vomiting, you could give a medication like clonidine to not only control blood pressure, but also decrease the amount of every other anesthetic that, that you're going to need and decrease the likelihood of causing post-op nausea and vomiting. So a very interesting piece that was not covered in sketchy form. So awesome. Other effects of clonidine is it provides sedation and anxiolysis because remember, it pretty much decreases the sympathetic output. Clonidine also helps with circulatory stability with general anesthesia because it reduces the level of catecholamines floating around in the system. And lastly, it prolongs the effects of regional anesthesia. Other high-yield effects for clonidine includes decreased post-op shivering, decrease opioid-induced muscle rigidity, and lastly, decrease opioid symptoms. Okay, now we're going to talk about dexmedetomidine, or I'm going to refer to it as dex. And dex could be used for sedation, analgesia, or as an adjunct in the anesthesia plan. And being an alpha-2 agonist, and has very similar properties as clonidine but there are some slight differences. So first, it has a stronger affinity for alpha-2 receptors compared to clonidine. And two, it has a shorter half-life, that is uh, two to three hours versus clonidine, which has a half-life of 12 to 24 hours. So DEX is a pretty versatile medication that can be used in different settings during the perioperative period. So during the intraoperative stage, you can use DEX to decrease the need for IV and inhaled anesthetics. In the post-op period, it can decrease requirement for analgesic and sedative requirements. When you're during a fiber optic intubation, DEX can be used for an awake sedation. And in the ICU and or PACU, DEX can be used for sedation without any significant ventilatory depression. So those were the alpha-2 agonists. And now we're going to end the episode by talking about beta blockers. Uh, particularly, we're going to talk about esmolol, labetalol, and metoprolol. So for Esmolol, the mechanism for that is it's a selective beta-1 antagonist and it's super short-acting. And the key effects of Esmolol include a decreased heart rate and slightly decreased blood pressure. The primary uses for Esmolol include preventing and minimizing tachycardia and hypertension due to stressors like intubation and the surgery itself. And it's also used to control ventricular rate in patients with AFib or flutter. Some key notes about Esmolol include that high doses would cause bronchial and vascular dilation due to beta 2 agonism. And again, this is at high doses. The contraindications for Esmolol, like for any other beta 1 blockers, is if the patient has. A history of sinus bradycardia has heart blocks greater than type one, and if they have cardiogenic shock, because the heart is already slow, and you don't want to drop a beta blocker on them and slow it even more. Next is the beta law. So the mechanism of the beta law is that it has mixed activity against alpha one, beta one, and beta two receptors, and this is little bit of a detailed fact, but the alpha to beta receptor antagonism has a ratio of 1 to 7. So it mostly acts on beta receptors as opposed to alpha. And the key effects of the beta law is it causes a decreased peripheral vascular resistance and arterial blood pressure, and it also decreases blood pressure without reflex tachycardia due to a combination of both the alpha and beta blockade. So using a law is great for patients with coronary artery disease. And lastly, we're going to talk about uh, metoprolol. So the mechanism for this is it's a selective beta 1 antagonist, and it can either be given uh, by a mouth or through an IV. And if you give metoprolol through IV, you're going to have to titrate it to effect. And that wraps up this episode on autonomic drugs and antihypertensives. Okay, and today's fun fact, we're going to go into outer space. We're going to talk about astronomy. So the brightest star in the night sky is the star called Sirius. And it's part of the constellation Canis Major. And a fun fact about Sirius itself is that it's a binary star. So it consists of two stars. One is a main sequence star and the other is a is a white dwarf star. And it's interesting to note because there's a common misconception that uh, the north star or Polaris is like the brightest star in the the night sky um however if you look at it it's it's not very bright at all and um i forget the apparent magnitude of it compared to sirius but hands down sirius is the brightest star in the night sky so yeah thanks for listening and this is scott the Malco student and look forward to seeing you in the next episode